1: the marketing podcast from Kantar, the world's leading marketing data and analytics company, and Side Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak with marketing leaders and share insights to help brands and business leaders navigate the ever-changing marketing landscape and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. I'm Jane Osler, and I'm EVP Global Thought Leadership at Kantar. So our guest today is Albert Reid and Albert is a managing director at Condé Nast and he's also author of a new book called The Imagination Muscle, which we're going to talk to him about today. So welcome to Albert and just full transparency, Albert, you are my brother-in-law. Yeah, Yeah, you are. Lucky you. So we're going to be talking about um, your book today. And it's a fascinating title, a fascinating topic called The Imagination Muscle. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind the book and what was your process behind it?
2: The idea for the book started a long time ago when I was following a piece of advice that I I give in the book, which is read what no one else is reading. And I was reading a book called. by, by someone called John claude Carrière about film. And he mentioned in his book, he, w- he was a writer who worked with Louis Buñuel and he and the director Louis Buñuel every night after filming would have this exercise. They'd go back to their hotel rooms and they would say to themselves, let's have an idea, let's have an idea for a story. Because if we keep having ideas for stories, we will exercise our imagination muscle. So the idea of the muscle is the imagination of something you can work at, something that isn't just something that's bestowed upon you from above. It's not something that is just God given, and in the way that the classical world thought about it, where they talk about we get the word inspiration from inspiro, that being breathed upon by the gods. This old sense of the word from, from from the Latin. And really, what I'm saying in this book is the imagination is not something; it's just merely fixed in our in our minds. It's something that is is is, is has has qualities. Like a muscle, it's something you can work on, you can develop, and in doing so, you will become happier and more alive. That that is the the, the essential idea of the book. And then, secondly, I working in Condé Nast, in a in a in a media business, in an ideas business, in a, in a business that requires fresh thinking, innovation in the editorial, in the way we run our business. I thought to myself over the years of doing this, how do we re- remain fresh? How do we have ideas? How do we keep them coming? If you're running a stall selling bananas, you wanna make sure that your supply of bananas is is secure. So how do we make our our ideas, the, the pipeline of ideas secure? So those those are the two kind of coalescing thoughts that came to me and really inspired the book, to use the word inspiration again. And that is where it started.
1: So you said you, you said you were thinking about where ideas come from. So in your research, in your exploration, where do you think ideas actually do come from? Can we, can we explain how the imagination works?
2: We can't really explain it. The, the, the neuroscientists can point to the, to the firing of the neural pathways. They can see the imagination working. But what we can't do is then reverse engineer it and systemize the idea process. Ideas still seem to come at, at, at moments which seem random. But what I'm saying in the book is really that, that you can you can identify those moments in in your day. You can find those moments when you might be going for the, the obvious ones are going for a walk or in the shower, but there are other ones too that I've I've written about in the book, which. Some of which are pretty quirky. So, so, Nabokov used to have his ideas sitting in in a parked car, and uh, the German Romantic poet Schiller kept a drawer of rotten apples in his in his office, and he would breathe deeply from this 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 drawer of apples, which emitted this gas called ethylene. It's kind of crazy. I actually tried it when I was writing the book. I bought <laughs> I bought a bag of apples from Sainsbury's, and I let them fester under my desk for six weeks, and then one day I. I was very brave, and I took this bag, and I breathed in and 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 inhaled this very bitter, toxic smell. And and, and actually, it didn't really work for me. I had to rush to the window and and I gagged. But anyway, this this worked for him. I tell you what did, does work for me, which is an idea that I got from studying the lives of these great imagineers, if you want to call them that. Is is the is the the idea of the waking moment, and and really the the first hours of the day if you can not immediately check your email and not immediately check the news first thing in the morning you have this time in your day which is a very fertile period in my experience where you're still semi detached to the unconscious you're still you're still in this world of, of of this hidden world of your enormous potential and yet you're also in a semi lucid world so i i find that very very beneficial moment of my day and that is when einstein said he first really understood relativity and that's when Walter Scott the the, the great writer said these, these this is when the ideas really came upon him and when he had these 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 moments of inspiration
1: so it's possible then that um yeah i'm i'm ruining my mornings by looking at twitter and looking at my you're phone our phone addicts aren't helping us. we're throwing out.
2: away treasure imaginative treasure
1: okay noted noted um yeah that that be a warning to to us all um moving on to sort of Work and corporate environments. I mean, you work for a big company. Um, lots of our listeners will be working for either large global organizations or, or corporate environments. What does it mean? How do you translate this this meaning, this this exercise of the imagination into a corporate environment where there are all sorts of, you know, everyday adventures, you know, different pressures facing us? How how do we how do we allow time for the imagination to flourish?
2: Well, I think the first thing you do is, I mean, I, I would answer this in two ways. One is how you manage other people and how you foster a, a culture of idea generation. And then the other is how you think about it for yourself. So in terms of managing teams, I, I always am careful to instill an expectation of ideas and just to make people think that what they need to do is to have ideas. And that, that is a, it's a rather basic thing to, 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 to say, but I think it's not always a given that, that you come into work uh, needing to have ideas. And they don't have to be big ideas. They can be big ideas, small ideas. They can be ideas around you know magazines or websites in our case, or they can be ideas around how to improve a production process on the factory floor. So really, and it t- it ties in with the Japanese notion of kaizen, this idea of continued improvement. And if you look at the most successful Companies they are ideas driven, and not only should one encourage an expectation of ideas, but one should also be very forgiving of bad ideas and rather encouraging of bad ideas because a bad idea can lead to a good idea, and you sometimes need to nurture something that's half formed because in a, in a, in, a, in a meeting it may it may it's, it may just strike somebody else in a different way and they that might bounce into into a good idea, and if you look at people like Bezos they embrace failure. Bezos says, if the size of your failures isn't growing, you're not going to be inventing at a rate that can actually move the needle. And if you look at Bezos, if you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at Edison, you know, at the end of the 19th century, these great inventors, these people who are responsible for some of the most successful innovative breakthroughs in, in, in in our history, actually were consistently failing. And they were... The successes came about through their, their their persistent attempts to try things. So if you look at someone like Steve Jobs, you know he was he invented the Apple Mac, but then he had a couple of disastrous inventions. He had the Power Mac G4 Cube and the Apple Lisa, and then he got fired, and then he came back and invented the iPhone. So it's a curious thing where we think successful people are always successful. In fact, they're not. They just keep trying. As one of the things they do is they keep trying. And it's the same with artists. You know, if you look at someone like um, Auden, the great poet, you know, he he said it's like that that good poets write more bad poems than bad poets because they keep they keep going and they keep on they keep on at it. Same with Wordsworth. The same with David Bowie. You know, David Bowie, who I worship, is it, it was it produced some abysmal music. You know, the Laughing Gnome, <laughs> followed by Ziggy Stardust. Not
1: one of the best. And then he went down yeah. again
2: into into a tin machine and they came up again at the end with Lazarus so so all artists all business people who are so are truly successful are comfortable with the idea of failure but then the, the other thing that I might say about about myself in in business is you know I've been I've been working in in the media for for a few years now and I think what one has to be aware of and has to be attentive to oneself is a number of things but I think you have to accept the world around you has changed. And I find myself sitting in meetings and somebody suggests an idea. And I think to myself, Oh, we tried that five years ago and it didn't work. And then I I stop myself (laughs) because I I realise that actually it may work now. The world has changed. Things have come around. And um, this idea, maybe it's time has arrived. And I think also if you get into a position of seniority, there's a tremendous, the ego kicks in. There's a tremendous need to feel right and you are paid for being right. And I think that's a very dangerous mindset because you know, we all think we're making linear progress on the path to wisdom as we rise through a company when the, you know, the, 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 we have all the answers and we are teaching younger people. But actually, in particularly in the world we're in at the moment, I think the enlightened leader knows that the best ideas are probably coming from other people. And that they may be coming from younger people. Mm. They may be coming from people with different backgrounds, with a different perception. And I think it's really difficult for people of a certain age at a certain stage in their career, to embrace this idea of of, of being contradicted, um, and really, that is a very difficult but important lesson to learn. And really, the rewards I think in leadership these days go to those with the greatest networks and those with the widest breadth of interests, and those confident enough to test their own assumptions. And I and I say in the book the hallmark of a successful person is to be able to imagine that they could be wrong
1: <laughs> very good we often talk in um, in market research and in insights about the need to uh, test and learn um, you know it's a continuous process mm. so that that ties in very well mm. with that but i think your your advice to people to listen to others and absorb new ideas is is um, is very good
2: can i add one other thing i mean to, also to add the to, yep. to, to retain the the other way of putting it is to retain the mindset of a beginner i think the the, 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 mm-hmm. if you if you have something going on on the side in your life where you are a beginner, I think it makes an enormous difference to your day job. And what I found fascinating in this book when I was researching the imagination muscle was when I discovered that Nobel Prize winners in science had a disproportionate tendency to have a side interest in art. They were artists, they were musicians, They play, you know, Einstein played the violin. Someone like um, um, Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin was also a very bad artist. He painted in his spare time. He's a member of the Chelsea Arts Club. And he, through his painting, one one can't help, there's another example, Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize in 1965, the particle physicist. He was also an artist. And I think what happens is you get this lightness of being a beginner. And and that, that,
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Replaces the heaviness of success and the heaviness of experience. And I find that such a fascinating concept that, that really being a beginner is is, is a very necessary um, attribute to the brain when you get particularly as you go as you go along in life
1: so presumably it speaks to the idea that actually you're you're continuously learning and you're willing to be open to new ideas Yes,
2: and you're you're able to be crap at something and and, and (laughs) actually the humility that that brings with it and that 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 curiosity to get better is 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 driving the imagination muscle
1: so so we can all we can all try and be uh polymaths potentially in, in our lives. Um, I want to move on to talk about one example that you give um halfway through the imagination muscle, which is where you um you write um about Hamilton the musical, um, hip-hop historical yes. biography. And I'm super interested in that, firstly because I've been to see it loads of times and I think it's really interesting and I love the lyrics and it's just super clever. Um it also, there's a point in there, though, where you, you talk about how Lin-Manuel Miranda has drawn on different ideas from history and from, and from music. And let's talk a bit about that and talk a bit about whether you think there is such a thing as an original idea.
2: What I want to do in the book is try and penetrate the notion of originality and really shine a light on, on these works of supposed great originality, and ask ourselves, what does it mean exactly to be original? And I I write about Shakespeare, and I write about Picasso, and I write about Gutenberg and the printing press. And then I write about Lin-Manuel Miranda. Miranda. And what I'm saying is, here's Hamilton, this wildly original. All the reviews said this is the most original thing they'd ever seen. And of course, they were right in a sense. And it's a a marvelous, brilliant work of of musical theatre, but within this musical is are a number of very unoriginal ideas. the The um, he follows a lot of the musical conventions. You know, the, the narrator Aaron Burr is is as the narrator as Nemesis is directly copied from Jesus Christ Superstar. Where Julia, you know you had um, Judas Iscariot narrating the story of Jesus, and you have um, Amadeus. You have you know, Salieri telling the story. So he takes that idea. He takes the idea of a chorus from Sweeney Todd telling the story at the beginning of the musical you have, which again goes back to Greek chorus, ancient Greek plays, Euripides, Sophocles. Um, so you have all these kind of theatrical tropes that are in there. And then, But then he layers in hip hop and rap and he layers in um, this big, dense biography of, of Hamilton by Ron Chernow. And, what he's doing is not is original in a sense and he's recombining lots of existing elements and he has this what i call this imaginative palette he has this ability by reading what no one else is reading going back to my the beginning of this conversation having this diversity of sources and and bringing together in a way that nobody else had ever done i don't think anybody in the history of humanity had ever had this combination of of things in their minds at the same time which then fused to make this brilliantly original musical and so he could see what no one else could see and he was you know he could and that was by reading what no one else is reading listening to what no one else is listening to and and just and just having this synthesis of of disparate thoughts coming together in in one place
1: so i think that's good advice for well sort of insights and people and and marketers who might be listening to this podcast is as, as as from your book is is do things that nobody else is doing and get influences from, from elsewhere. Um, and in a way, I guess what you're saying is that, you know, we're all sampling, aren't we? If you use a sort of music term, um, it, trying to think of new ideas is a combination of what has gone before with other influences, that thing, ingredients that other people may not have put together before. Is that what you th- your thesis yes, is? Yes, completely.
2: And I think one shouldn't hmm. be too... I think one should be one should feel i'm talking very particularly in the case of artistic work, but feel able to borrow not in an illegal way but in a in a in a in a sampling way um ideas from other people the other idea I mentioned the other example I talk about is is the beginning of Star wars and c three p o and r two d two walking through the desert at the beginning of the of the film, and that's taken directly from a Japanese film by Kurosara called The Hidden Fortress, and it's exactly the same story in that case it's two Japanese. Farm workers about to be caught up in an epic battle. One of them is tall, and the one is short. And it's the tall, the tall Japanese farmer who complains the most. The C three PO figure, and so you get this direct lift that George Lucas would would you know he 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 talks about it very openly, um, and yet Star Wars is this wildly supposedly original piece of work. So I think you know we you start with something, the framework that somebody else might lend you, and then you build something delicate on top of it and then over time perhaps the framework can be taken out carefully from underneath and you have a new a new entity of your own
1: so let's move on to the uh, topic of uh, inevitably the topic of technology and um, artificial intelligence so how how does the the concepts of creativity and uh, imagination and technology and artificial intelligence all collide because presumably we we're living in interesting times now for ideas aren't we
2: Yes, we are, and I think there are two ways of looking at it. I think there's a there's a pessimistic view and an optimistic view. I think the the pessimist would say that AI is taking over more and more of the imaginative, creative work going on at the, at the, at the lower end of the hierarchy, whether it's you know adverts, music for adverts, or whether it's um, copywriting for catalogs, and AI is like this rising tide that's at our feet and coming up to our knees and gradually will take over the whole of the imaginative activity. And um, there are all sorts of problems of that. If, you, if that's the way you see it, if you're a composer and and some of the basic work of a composer taken away, why would you try and do something new when what is adequate seems to be sufficient? So I think there's a sort of adequacy problem with with, with technology and that it gives you something that's good enough. And you see this in a way with, with Hollywood sequels, where the top 10 films of 2022 were much like the top ten films of of, of nineteen ninety six, so and then there's a, there's other evidence suggesting that chord progressions are getting safer in music, and music is going this way of Hollywood sequels, where you just get this something that's reassuringly familiar but a little bit different. But I think there's also an optimistic view of AI and the imagination. I think the at the moment, you know, the human asks the question, and AI helps the question to evolve, and it it tries multiple connections for us. And throughout this, the human mind is still the curator. And it gives you enormous power to do things that might have been beyond you as an individual before, whether it's special effects or a film, or whether it's creating a video game, these things can now be done or soon will be able to be done with AI in a much more cost-effective way. So I think there's something here that is, is really exciting for the creative industries I don't think AI will replace the imagination, but I think, and it may not take your job, but it's possible that your job will be taken by somebody else using AI. So I think it's incumbent upon people to use AI and to understand it if they're in the creative industries in their particular field. I think the real question is, we're still framing the questions. When we type the questions into chat GPT-4, it's still asking the right questions. And what the question about the question is, will... Can AI ask the question? Can it ask a question that's both important and is it one? And can it ask a question that a human couldn't answer?
1: There's a really interesting chapter in your book, Albert, about um, cities um, and also about offices. So, can you talk about how cities affect ideas, how things are built, uh, how does that affect the imagination? Well,
2: one of the things, the way that I have the book is covers the imagination is, is parts of it are focusing on what's happening on the inside. And part of it is talking about what happens on the outside. So I talk about coffee shops and clusters and groups of people coming together as a great um, engine of, of, of great rocket fuel for, for the mind and really the great geniuses of history, whether it's Shakespeare or Darwin or, or Steve Jobs. They, they tended to come out of clusters of groups of people. They were surrounded by other geniuses or brilliant minds who lifted them up. So I think the idea that I'm really trying to put forward is is that um, we can't operate in a vacuum, and ideas happen as a result of being with other people. On top of that, we are living in a world where we predominantly occupy an urban environment, the number of people living in the city exceeds the number of people living in the country. So that's something we have to bear in mind for the future. And and we have more and more people living in cities. The global city dwelling population is projected to increase by two and a half billion people before 2050, with most of that growth coming from Asia and Africa. And China alone is on course to build 300 cities, new cities, each of over a million people over the next 25 years. And so what we have to think to ourselves is the large majority of ideas are gonna come from people living in cities. And so we have to think about cities in a different way in my view, We have to think about cities, not only as places full of buildings that shelter us, but also places where we feel safe and places which inspire positive emotions, but also places that inspire the imagination. And I say in the book, I say the the people sitting around, the architects and the developers and the city councillors and the town planners, they should be sitting around saying, the imagination feeds growth ideas are our salvation so how do we design a city above all for ideas and really my, my line is that nothing is as important and urgent as this question if the, if the imagination is going to propel us into the future a city for ideas is the foundation and going back a step the the story that i tell is one of corbusier who was this great modernist architect and City planner at the beginning of the twentieth century, who really what? Who really thought that doing away with the cobbled streets and the mixed-up alleyways and the the, the the town squares should be replaced by tower blocks and parkland? And he he came very close to knocking down the center of Paris, the Marais district. And what I'm saying in the book is, ideas coming out of cities tend to come out of the cobbled the, the cobbled together bits, the the, the 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 souks of medieval Islam and the back alleys of Renaissance Florence and Greenwich Village and Notting Hill and and the back streets of Tokyo. This is where we all want to be. And yet we still haven't really grasped this fundamental fact. And when you look at the latest town planning, you get some very good examples of where this is understood. I think the King's Cross development with Thomas Heatherwick is a very good example of that. But there are also plenty of terrible examples where tower blocks are still crammed together and and these are not cities being designed for ideas.
1: You've been listening to Future Proof from Kantar and Side Business School. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode.